This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. If you know anyone who clings to antiquated notions that documentary films are dry affairs, kindly refer them to Beyond Utopia, Madeline Gavin's movie about the perilous paths North Korean defectors and their allies take to get them safely out of one of the world's most repressive and cloistered countries. In addition to addressing the important issues about a geopolitical hotspot, the filmmaking here makes for a very compelling, almost thriller-like adventure. Director Madeline Gavin and producer Sue Me Terry join the Political Theater podcast to discuss their project. Madeline, Sue, welcome to Political Theater. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Uh, it's a pleasure. So before we get into, you know, kind of the particulars the, about the filmmaking and so forth, I just wanted to, to ask, how did this project come about? Um, we'll, we'll get into some of the details, but this, is, this could not have been an easy film to make uh, in, in addition to just sort of the, the fact that uh, North Korea and, and the United States uh, and don't really get along all that well. Uh, I mean, just the logistical challenges of reaching people, talking to them, finding them, you know, tagging along uh, through several countries on the way to freedom and so forth. Uh, th- this had to be expensive and complicated and dangerous. So how, how, did you, how did you all come to this project? Well, I was um, initially approached by our producers um, and they had acquired the rights to Hyuncio Lee's memoir, The Girl with Seven Names. Uh, Hyuncio is really one of the most high-profile defectors um, out there, uh, and she defected more than 20 years previous. So at the time, you know, I knew that if I were to do this, I wasn't I wasn't interested in doing like a biopic or something that would recreate something in the past. But I read the book and you know, it was haunting and, and and stirring. And it really inspired me to go into a period of research. And that period of time extended, extended. I was, you know, obs- I became obsessed with North Korea for many months, um, dug into the internet very deeply in, you know, doing searches with VPNs, using every language I could think of to try to find different pieces, depending on where, what language I searched under, et cetera. And I discovered, you know, two things. One, I discovered this incredible uh, hidden camera footage that these very brave and determined North Koreans had been shooting, you know, out of the sleeves of their coats, et cetera, risking their lives, really, to shoot the reality of their country and to get that truth out to the rest of the world. So I discovered that that made me feel the heartbeat of the people. At the same time, I learned even more sort of starkly the fact that we don't get to hear from the people, that in all of my searching, the 26 million people were missing. You know, it was everything that the Kim regime basically wants us to uh, to hear on our news, the parades, the missiles, et cetera. So the gulf between feeling the heartbeat of the people and seeing the absence of the people made me at a certain point say, I have to make this movie. And um, and it goes on from there. But essentially, I started working with Hyuncio, but knowing and she and I brainstorming that I wanted something present tense. And on my second or third trip to Seoul, I read about Pastor Kim and sought him out. And that just took the film to 
totally another place and exactly where I had really wanted it or dreamed of it going, but never imagined possible. Right. And, and Pastor Kim, just for, for, for those folks who haven't seen the film, he's the, uh, one of the people who is, is a, you know, um, guides and, and people contact him to get their, you know, to sort of, I don't even know, like shepherd is a, is a sort of a strange term for this, but, you know, to, to get people out and to get them, once they even get out of North Korea, that's just the beginning of, <laughs> of their journeys because they, they can't really go through the demilitarized zone because of the, you know, bajillion landmines and, and military, you know, obstacles. Uh, so they have to go through China and then that entails usually going, you know, then through Vietnam and Laos. I mean, it's a perilous journey through yeah. surveillance states, you know. Yep. And Sue, I, I, I'm, you know, you said the, you know, right before we went on that you had just gotten back from Korea, and one, one of the things that uh, uh, strikes me about this in the film is that, you know, you, you hear anecdotally just the, you know, how different North Korea and South Korea are, and it's hard. I think it's hard for people to imagine in the United States because we're so connected that, and South Korea in particular is one of the most technologically advanced societies we have, and then in North Korea there is literally no no cell phone service, no internet service, nothing that people have any way of contacting the outside world. They have to go close to China or South Korea to even get these faint signals to, you know, to use burner phones to contact people. Talk a little bit about the challenge of just, you know, like arranging contact with people in North Korea. Well, you're right. I mean, South Korea, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, 10th largest economy in the world. North Korea is 198th ranked economy in the world. South Korea, with all its soft power, right, Parasite, BTS, Squid Game, K-pop, and all of this, North Korea, people don't have access to internet. This is, I think it's really hard for people to understand that. Um, but there are ways to reach North Koreans, but it, of course, we have to use lots of brokers. It's very costly. Um, and, you know, the brokers have to get their phone in, or and, and North Koreans have to go to the border areas and picking up the Chinese signal, and then they can have this very brief conversation after paying a lot of money because anything more than a very brief conversation, they will get caught. But it's, it's a black hole. It's one of the most isolated societies in country in the world. Um, so here is two Koreas used to be same country, same people, same language, thousands of years. And just by different fate, here's North Korea and here's South Korea. And, and Madeline, you know, you, you said that, you know, when you, started doing the groundwork for, for doing the film, you didn't want it to be, you know, this sort of like, here's, here's the history. And I'm going to spend four hours talking about it, which you obviously could, there's a lot there, but you, I mean, the, the, there's this, there's a skill with which you pull off giving the audience just enough to know about like the, the history, particularly the last hundred years or so uh, of the Korean peninsula but this is really about the journey of several of these families, and particularly one family of five who wades across the Yellow River into China. There's an 80-year-old grandmother with them, two parents, and two small children. And then Pastor Kim gets the call, and it's on. And so much of this footage, I don't know how you got it or how what kind of danger. But talk a little bit about this, because you have a disclaimer at the beginning of the of your film that says, no recreations here, which is almost beyond belief because of how raw some of the footage is and how dangerous it must have been to get it. Yeah. Um, I put that disclaimer at the top of the film because when I was first getting footage out of China of the Roe family, a friend of mine um, 
named Mary, <laughs> said to me, oh my God, those recreations are incredible. And I realized that everyone's going to assume they're recreations. You know, they, they, it was so mind-blowing what we were getting. And so I had to put that disclaimer. But back to how we got this, I mean, this goes back to Pastor Kim. You know, when he and I got to know each other, which took many months, you know, he's been approached by many filmmakers in the past, networks, hasn't had the greatest experience. So it was many, many months of he and I gaining each other's trust. And at a certain point, we realized that we were really interested in making the same sort of film, which was, if we're going to do this, let's do it all the way, you know, in a safe way that doesn't put the family more at risk, let's say, than they already were, because obviously they're at risk just by nature of attempting to defect, but not to put them at risk in any other way. And yet let's document it. How do we do that? And it's really, you know, I cannot give enough credit to Pastor Kim. We could not have done any of this without him. You know, his network, as Sue said, they keep cameras hidden along the more than 800 mile river border between North Korea and China. And those cameras are used to be smuggled into North Korea by North Koreans, who again are getting the truth of their country out. But they're also used by the, uh, by the Underground Railroad, never to the extent that we did, but they're used to document some of this so that they can get information of fellow North Koreans attempting to escape into North Korea to, you know, crack open the outside world for North Koreans. So it's it was, you know, we shot on the border of North Korea and China, a place that nobody can go and nobody shoots and nobody wants to go. And we did that because it was the Underground Railroad, you know, that, that was able to do that. In terms of um, where we were, we took all of our cues, not only from Pastor Kim, but from policy people, including Sue, people inside you know, South Korea and the United States and policy and activism to make sure, again, that we were not you know, drawing any extra attention to, to anything that we were doing. But we were allowed to be in uh, Vietnam and Laos. We were allowed to be on the border of Laos and Thailand. And of course, we were in South Korea. So it was a hodgepodge where some of it we were shooting, some of it farmers were shooting, brokers were shooting, family members were shooting. Um, and it was really... Without Pastor Kim, we couldn't have done any of it. And and Sue, I mean, Pastor Kim is, you know, this just incredible figure. And I can't think of anybody who's like more opposite of like a debonair, you know, uh, ma international man of mystery. But this guy is the real deal. I mean, he's this like kind of dad. Right. I mean, he's, he's he jokes about his pot belly and his like clothes, you know, that, that are fit. But then he's like trekking into mountain country and jungles to help this family get, you know, like to, to safety. He's cognizant that if he's caught, you know, in, in Thailand, he could be arrested, which is ironic, right? Because they've been through all these repressive regimes in North Korea, China, <laughs> Vietnam, and, and, and Laos, and he, he can move in there, but he, he's constantly in danger as, as much danger as the people who he's, he's trying to help. Um, and, and again, if if these people get caught, it's not like they're just, you know, it's it's not a catch and release thing, and it's not a just oh they just return them and you know like they just get to try again some, some another time. They they're in prison. They go to gulags and are possibly executed. So the dangers are just unreal. They're almost unfathomable how dangerous this is. Pastor Kim is literally risking his life. He has actually been. Um, in, in prison in China. Um, that's why South Korean National Security Intelligence Service has warned Pastor Kim. He said, you can never go back into China again. 
Um, so he, yes, absolutely right. He has all, he's, he has physical, you know, he, he got injured. I don't know how many times. Um, he, he is in danger. He can't, that's why he cannot now go into China. And when he helps this royal family, for example, um, he had to track himself back. So after the royal family goes off, he had to return in the same way that he came into, right? So he had to go back through the jungle and all of that. Um, and it's not like he's, necessarily super uh healthy in terms of fit. <laughs> so he's you know middle-aged guy uh, so i sympathize it, i'm one of those middle-aged guys <laughs> well it's really it's out of his conviction it's his moral compass it's his faith that's driving him to help in this way he considers it as his life mission but this is why he's a hero and Madeline, just to, I mean, like, again, with the, the issue, it's so, it's so weird to, you know, we're kind of going back and forth between this is an incredibly important issue and compelling from a human standpoint. I mean, these people are, have been uh, repressed for their entire lives and, you know, they're, they're, they get out of North Korea and this is the, you know, sometimes this is the first time they've seen, uh, you know, a, a, a toilet that works, you know, I mean, I mean, the, and, and then, but so, and these are all important, but again, back to the filmmaking, I mean, I, I sort of kept this running list of things that make this a compelling adventure and I'm not trying to diminish the the issues, but you've got a super complicated logistical escape. You have checkpoints that people have to mount, uh, go, go through, jungle crossings, safe houses, uh, intelligence sources, uh, betrayals by the brokers. Uh, uh, some people would call them uh, smugglers. <laughs> uh, people in, in my home state of Arizona would call them coyotes. I mean, there's all sorts of names for brokers is one of the more neutral terms, I think. Um, river crossings at night, <laughs> uh, possible drownings in rivers uh, because of fast currents as they're going into to Thailand. Um, you know, just on and on, you know, a, a bribed police officers. I mean, this is a... This is like an Indiana Jones, you know, sort of like thriller in in a way. And it's almost like guilty. It's it's guilty because it's the film is so entertaining. It's like a horror movie. I mean, I've seen this in some of the reviews comparing it to things like Blair Witch Project and 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 so forth that it's just it's scary and it's thrilling and then you're thinking like, "Oh wait, no, this is real. These people are really doing this." <laughs> and by the way, the royal family is carrying cyanide pills because if they get caught they are just they're rather you know kill themselves rather yeah. than be sent back so think about the the just the desperation right, right. how desperate and with as you mentioned 80 something old grandmother and little children so madeline <laughs> yeah. just, i mean and, and you filmed this and so well this is again you know pastor kim and i when we decided to do this together we thought through every single aspect of, you know, not knowing, okay, of course, we didn't know what was going to happen, right? So we didn't know what was going to happen around the next corner, but we thought through every single thing that we would need to or want to document and how would we do it? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, and then in the putting it together in the editing, you know, it was, that was, I, I wanted people to be, I wanted it to be experiential because I wanted, if we're going to do this, right? I wanted people to really feel what it was like for these North Koreans because we have ignored them for 70 plus years. So outrageous. So if we're going to do this, let's really do it. Let's 
put people in their shoes. Let's get people to really feel what's going on. And that meant, like you said before, you know, on the one hand, it's verite, it's in the present. On the other hand, I felt like there were little things that I needed to establish about the history of North Korea, you know, the genesis of the country, um, about little peculiarities about North Korea, because, you know, this isn't just an anonymous group of five attempting to escape from an anonymous country. This is a very specific country. And so I wanted to make sure that, you know, as we follow the Roe family, we also learn about the Roe family by learning about their country, by learning about what life was like for them in their country, by learning about what the reasons are that they had to do this, that they risked this, that they, as Sue said, even took cyanide pills with them in case they were caught. They knew that either they make it or they're dead, you know, one way or the other, by either by the North Korean regime or by killing themselves. And, um, and so, yeah, and trying to remind audiences because we can, you know, watching a movie, we can go numb, just sort of, yeah, they're in the mountains, yeah. Like trying to remind people of what it was really like because that is what it was like when we were filming it. It was a life or death situation. And so that was one of my main goals and Pastor Kim's is just trying to remember all the time, like you said, this is crazy, but wait, this is also real you know, over and over and, again. And I think for the film, our, our team, it's it, it's high risk film, right? Because at the end of the day, there could be no movie. There's no right. film. Right. At any point, they could be captured. So we were going through this tension with them as, the, as they were getting, you know, the film was being made because we didn't know they were going to make it until they make it, right? So right. not only that, I mean, yes, that's absolutely right what Sue said, but not only that, I had a mandate, which one of my producers, <laughs> Sue knows, she went crazy, which was, you know, we cannot ask a family of five for proper consent when they have fled North Korea across a river into the mountains of China. They don't even have a concept of what a film is, you know, and you're going to ask them for consent. Impossible. The network, you know, the Underground Railroad does keep those cameras, as, as we said, and they do film parts of their escapes or attempted escapes to get that information back into North Korea. And we had temporary consent from the from a family member of the Roe family, the one who's in, he's in the film, Huck Chang, um, and is already in South Korea to film, right? But we had the mandate that if the Roe family didn't want any of this shown, we would never be able to show it. So one of my producers was like, wait, what? We're going to film this movie and we may not get... And my point to her was, yes. Either we, you know, the only way we have a chance of making this movie is to take the risk that we may not have a movie. And, you know, not only, yes, people could be caught, we could be caught um, as well, or people could deny consent. But we have no chance of making a movie if we don't go in accepting those risks. And with Soyeon, the second story, who a mother living in South Korea who was trying to rescue her son, with her, oh, this is the not so happy ending of the movie. Right. I was yeah. shooting with Soyeon up until two weeks before we premiered the film at Sundance. So, you know, because we were still trying to get information about her son out. And I wanted to make sure, you know, Soyeon was watching cuts along the way, but I wanted to make sure that she had the right to give consent up until the last minute of where her story with her son was. And so, literally, two weeks before Sundance, I had alternate cuts of the film that I was also putting together in case Soyeon suddenly decided 
she didn't want to be in the film. So it was, yeah, but that was the only way to, again, to, to, right. uh, do this. Yeah, with yeah, with a, with a regular with a non with a fiction film, you know, you you know where this is heading. You know that the family makes it out. You know that somebody's going to, unless it's the some weird nineteen seventies depressing movie or something like that. But <laughs> uh, but but you know, I mean, you you have a, a handle on this, and that occurred to me too. I mean, just what you're describing, Madeline, that like there was no guarantee that they were going to make it out of the jungle. There, there was no guarantee that they weren't going to drown in the Mekong River. Uh, there was no guarantee that they wouldn't get into a car accident, you know, <laughs> I mean, and, and, and things like that. And, and it's just, you know, I there there are occasionally documentaries that come along where you you under that that realization comes to you of like, oh, wow, when this was being filmed, there wasn't we didn't know what the ending was. We do now. We do. We know that, you know, we that COVID ended, you know, for instance, you know, but like. You know, I've seen documentaries now that where they were filming in New York in April and May of 2020. And it was like there was no guarantee that they would, that the filmmakers would make it out even, you know, much less the subjects. Yeah. Well, Madeline, Sue, thank you so much for for coming on Political Theater and talking about this really extraordinary film. I mean, like this is, again, you know, the the. I know this is an old notion that documentaries are, you know, like just a bunch of like uh, uh, professors, you know, talking in their studies. <laughs> uh, this is not that film. Uh, and and I love I love talking to people about what uh, films like this, like you've made, uh, because it's it's an important topic. It's they're compelling subjects. And and it is a th- it's thrilling. It, it the, the movie really zips through. Um, I, I watched it at work and people were wondering why I would look like I was, you know, about to come unglued because I was quite literally on the, uh, the edge of my seat, uh, at, in my, in, at work. So good luck with the film. I know it's out in theaters and also tell me, is it streaming, uh, what, what platform? It's going to be in January on, um, ITVS, Independent okay. Lens and Hulu. Well, Madeline, Sue, thank you so much. Uh, and, uh, and good luck with the film. Thank you so much. Thank you. Having coffee with you. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks.